attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. All right, Entree Architect community, it's time for Context and Clarity Live, where we spend an hour every Thursday afternoon searching for clarity around the things that matter most to you the architect. And it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm or if you own your own firm. Maybe you dream of starting your own thing. Maybe you've even said that 2021 is my year and you're on the runway to starting your own thing. Or maybe you have had a firm for a year or 10 years or 20 years and you're starting to rethink or reimagine what that firm could or maybe even should be. All of the topics that we cover fall under the broad umbrella of the business of architecture, and they're all the need-to-know topics for the success of architects just like you. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff Eccles, and what you're about to listen to is the audio recording of a conversation that my co-host Catherine McPhail and I had last week with our Context and Clarity guest. Every week, we have a new guest and a new topic, so let's jump right into the conversation. This episode of the Context and Clarity podcast is supported by Infratech. Bring indoor comfort to outdoor living with Infratech comfort heaters. All right, Entree Architect community, it's 4 p.m. Eastern, which means it's time for the Entree Architect Context and Clarity live conversation for Thursday, December 2nd. It's our first Context and Clarity live in December, which means we're almost to the end of 2021. Thanks for joining us today. As you get here, say hi. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff and I come here every afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern for one reason, so that we can find clarity around the things that matter most to you. The architect doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm or you own your own firm. Maybe you circle the date on the calendar and you have 29 days left to get something started in 2021 or Maybe you have owned your own firm for a year or 10 years or 26 years, and you're starting to rethink or reimagine what that firm could or maybe even 
should be. All of the topics that we cover every day and every week, they all fall under the broad umbrella of the business of architecture. They're all the need-to-know topics for the success of small firm architects just like you. So thanks for joining me today. As usual, I am joined by my co-host today. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Um, I, no, you can't Uh-oh. hear me. Okay, well, I'm having a lot of technical difficulties today. I'm I'm okay. um, happy to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> glad, glad that you're here. Um, sorry about the technical difficulties. Uh, mm. I was I was noticing on my screen as everybody was coming in that um, I think this changed on my screen. I saw Christian's name in first, but then I see Nicole. Uh, I see her name at, at the bottom of the list. So I honestly am not sure who to award the crocheted bathtub to today. Hmm. Do you have any Maybe idea? nobody. Nobody gets it today. <laughs> It's a tie. Everybody gets a crocheted bathtub. It'll be like Oprah. You get a crocheted bathtub. You get a crocheted bathtub. John Jones from Connecticut can have a crocheted bathtub. Sarah Lee can have one in in Salt Lake City. Christian was saying that Zach should get a crocheted trophy for being the first repeat guest. Yes, we do have a repeat guest today. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't don't know if he knows he's the the first. Oh, whoops. uh, Was I not supposed to say who it was? Uh, well, no, we'll, we're going to get there very soon anyway. So I was glad to have everybody uh, with us today. Nicole says she sees Sarah Lee at the top of hers. Now I see Sarah Lee and then John Jones and then Christian. I don't know what's going on. We've got yeah. all kinds of things going on in the comments section. Glad to have all of you here. I see Mark LePage. He says it's 4 p.m. Eastern in Waxhaw, North Carolina. Glad that you're here. And Tim Dearborn in Stockton, California. I think our guest may recognize that name as well. Glad to have all of you here. Uh, as far as I see on the screen right now, everybody shows up as their picture, them, themselves, and their name, which is great. If you happen to show up as Facebook user or LinkedIn user or something like that, uh, it's because of privacy policies from the platform that you're coming from. And there's an easy way to fix that. If you would rather show up as your name with your with your photograph and right now i see everybody's name and photograph so you're all good but for someone that joins us uh here in a few minutes perhaps go to chat.restream.io slash fb as in facebook uh, i assume it's probably a li for linkedin or others um, but you can give your platform permission to talk to restream which is where we're joining you from today and uh and you'll show up just like sarah lee is Right now, I see her name. I see her her picture with her hands. Uh, um, too narrow. I see her hands up like that, and uh, she's celebrating because she deserves the crocheted bathtub today, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, so, chat.restream.io/fb. Uh, if you're not showing up, if you're not displaying the way that you would like to be, I see Diego is joining us from YouTube, and Merritt is joining us from Twitch. All right, she's taking a step out taking a walk on the wild side over on Twitch and joining us. We could have right now. I don't know if all of you know this or not, but usually we're just inside the Facebook group, the Entree Architect Community Facebook group every weekday afternoon. But for the simulcast, we're there in the Facebook group. We're on LinkedIn as usual. We're on uh, YouTube as usual on the Entree Architect YouTube channel, the Twitch, Entree Architect Twitch stream. And now um, we're also on Twitter live on Twitter. So five different platforms right now. Uh, you can join, you can watch, you can listen from any of those, you can comment from any of those, participate in the conversation. So we'll see where everybody comes from today. 
great to have all of you here. And also, if you're joining us from the future, if you're listening to the podcast version of this, welcome. Glad that you're joining. Glad that you're listening in. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Context and Clarity is a podcast. It comes out, it comes out every Monday afternoon, and uh, you get a replay of this conversation. And then on Tuesday, you get what we call Context and Clarity Backstage, where Catherine and I go backstage with guests from our community, and we talk about our biggest takeaways from this conversation. I think that's a really fantastic uh, version of the podcast as well, because we get to find out what the community took away from this conversation that we're about to have. So um, if you're a podcast person, go to wherever you consume podcasts, look for the Context and Clarity podcast. Mondays, you get Context and Clarity live. Tuesdays, you get context and clarity backstage. So with all that, I think I've taken up too much of our time already because I know that there's going to be a lot to talk about in this conversation. We do have a repeat guest today. Um, for one, because I actually felt bad for ending the conversation the first time this guest was on because there was just so much to talk about. S such a great conversation. Um, we could probably make an entire week or two long series out of this. And for the first time ever, we have a second guest with us. So you might just want to sit back and crack open a cold one because this might be a five or six hour conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's <Catherine's>, just joking. <laughs> He's kidding. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Catherine's sticking around for five or six hours based on that uh, reaction. But. We've got a lot to talk about, so let me uh, let me make some introductions here. Uh, our first guest has been on Context and Clarity Live before, which does make him our first repeat guest. He's a board member, a mentor, and a very part-time groundskeeper. Was that a good enough clue to, that you know who it was or who who from last time? Uh, he's a podcast host, a risk management consultant, and the founder and CEO of Black Swan Risk Management. Zach Waters, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. How's it going, everybody? Really Thank good, really me. good. Great to have you back. Our Thank second you. guest is an attorney, a board member, and a volunteer. He's an affiliate member of both the American Institute of Architects and the American Council of Engineering Companies and the founding partner of Litchfield Law PC. Stephen Litchfield, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you and Zach. Great to have both of you here. Um, many, many of uh, our audience knows that I've been I've been kind of geared up for this all week because, um, like I said, we we talked to Zach back. I think it was September 23rd. If you're somebody that remembers what a calendar looks like and has any idea what year this is, um, I chucked mine out the window already. I've, I'm, I've given up on calendars. Um, but go back to September 30, 23rd. We talked to Zach about risk management. We've been talking about risk management all week. And I think today, having Zach from the insurance side, Stephen from the attorney, the legal side, and talking about that intersection uh, can be a really, really great conversation and, and be very eye-opening for our audience here. So I'm glad to have both of you here with us today. Super excited. Ready for the six hours of risk management. Let's do it. Calendar's <laughs> clear. <laughs> and a bunch of architects just fell out of their I know. Chairs. We just lost the everybody. stress was overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, risk man. management for six hours. I can't take half an hour of it. <laughs> well, why don't, why don't we just start with, um, you guys have worked together before. Um, 
so when it when it comes to architecture, when it comes to construction, the AEC world, and you guys are working together, how do your two different worlds, the insurance world and the legal world, how do you work together when you're you're on a case or when you have a, a client together? What's that look like? How does that work together? Oh, that's a good question. And somebody just asked, do we get continuing ed? I wish. It's actually really hard to put together a presentation that qualifies for AIA continuing ed. Like, there's a whole process. you got to go through that. Um, so just a little bit. Steve and I met uh, about three years ago when we were both working for much larger firms. And the the relationship at that time, and, you know, as a risk manager and an insurance broker, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we handle in the liability section for architects and engineers. Um, we would often bring guys like Steve or people, you know, firms like Steve in for um, education seminars, right? And they, they have their specialties. And um, if and when something does go sideways, meaning there is some type of a claim or at least a, a pre-claim, there's a, there's a question uh, about whether or not we might be getting sued, we might have an issue with a client, um, we would bring someone like Steve in uh, and the insurance company would bring someone like Steve in to be able to handle uh, that situation provide guidance if needed, uh, go to litigation, you know, do, do all types of uh, legal services. Um, so fast forward a few years later, Steve opened up his own practice. I opened up my own practice. And one of the reasons that we get along so well is that we've noticed in our industries, you know, we, for whatever reason, our, our two industries don't have the best reputations of, uh, of people who are always looking out for their clients and always doing the right things. Um, so that's been that's been something that we try to change, right? It's it's a really hard thing to change the stigma, but something that we try to change, providing value, taking care of people, kind of regardless of size, um, and then specifically working with small architects, it matters more. Is what is the best way I can describe it? it matters more to do good work for a smaller firm because they they tend to appreciate it a lot more. It's it's a really big deal. Um, you know, you can do great great work for a large firm and actually get paid a lot of money and. You know, it doesn't really matter that much to them. So um, that's kind of, that's how I think about the story in my head. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Steve. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's definitely how it happened and kind of addressing sort of the nuts and bolts of it. Um, you know, Zach sometimes will get me involved on the front end when he has a client that's looking for, like, you know, likely the type of risk man management advice uh, that the guests today are looking for. Um, and then we also sort of collaborate through the process. You know, I, there's intricacies of, of contracts and coverage language and things like that where I'll bounce ideas off of Zach and, and ask questions of him. And then, like you said, you know, in the, in the unfortunate event when there's a claim or potential claim, then him and I will get together and sort of figure out what the best course of action is for, you know, our prospective client. So, so when you think about, you know, it, there, there are a number of people in the audience right now that have started their own firms in the last, say, 20 months. So, you know, they're in a startup situation. Um, and, and obviously a lot of people that uh, have had their firms for some time as well. But when we think about a firm and what they need to understand and what they need to do, um, both on the insurance side and on maybe the contract side, the, the legal side, um, are there any... Any sort of rules of thumb for startup and the things that, that they should be paying attention to? That's a good question. Um, my first place I would go, it would be kick to Steve, would be on what, what type of entity are you going to be, right? What, 
if you're if you're going to form a practice, we're going to, you know, I'm going to be a sole proprietor or I'm going to join a few people um, and we're going to start practice tomorrow. Uh, first of all, what is the business entity? What does the business structure look like? And and there are some rules around that. And I'll let him kind of go into the rules. But you want to make sure, you know, as licensed designers, as architects and depending on the state that you get those rules right, because I've seen some people do that incorrectly and that that has some consequences to it. Yeah, right. and I put up I put up Christian's um, question here because that is exactly mm -hmm. what he's asking about whether yep. um, if you don't have any partners or employees, is there any point to it, and what it will protect our personal assets? Is there any point to incorporating? Right. Yeah. And I, yeah exactly. I, I, I have I have a, a sort of checklist that I follow for for new clients when they are you know just getting off the ground. My recommendation typically is that you do incorporate. Um, some, some people feel, some people feel differently about it, but I think that the, the costs are, you know, typically relatively minimal if you have someone that knows what they're doing and can, can walk you through the process. Um, but to answer Christian's question a little more directly, a corporation or, you know, depending on where you are, an LLC or a partnership, um, some states, uh, architects aren't allowed to operate as those types of entities, so um, it's kind of jurisdiction specific. But generally, a corporation can protect your personal assets if you're doing uh, all the right things to, you know, separate the corporate entity from the individual. The, the exception to that is a lot of jurisdictions have individual liability for architects that sign and stamp plans. So... Um, you know, in that sense, your personal assets, you know, hypothetically could be on the line, even if you are incorporated. But I still think just from a, from a standpoint of potentially wanting to grow, from a standpoint of, um, you know, how you present yourself to the outside world being, you know, showing that you've done the work to be incorporated and that you have insurance coverage. I, I think that it's all, it's all worth it. Right. I would go one more there and I would say when somebody comes and they're starting a, a, a firm, I would want to understand what the goals are of the firm uh, because I typically get two people who are coming asking for insurance to form a, a design firm. One is we've done it on our own for a certain period of time, maybe worked for a larger firm or you know gotten some experience some way and now we're ready, we're an entrepreneur, we're going to do this thing. And it doesn't mean like we're scaling, you know, we're going to be Gensler or anything like that. But it means, you know, I, I, am, I want to do this on my own. I want to set my own rules. Um, and I don't necessarily even have clients yet. We're developing, you know, marketing strategies and things like that. But I'm ready to do that. The other person that we see a lot of is more out of necessity, which is this, these projects fell into their lap. Uh, maybe it's side work. Maybe it's, you know, uh, enough to keep that person busy. They hadn't even really thought about opening a practice, but this opportunity is there. So, hey, the work is there. Let me take it. But I know I probably need insurance for that, too. Um, and neither of those are right or wrong, but I kind of want to understand what the mindset is because that's going to help us answer a lot of the questions down the road, right? Um, if you have aspirations of starting as a sole proprietor, growing this five employees, 10, 20, you know, 50, it might look a little different than if you're like, hey, I'm going to do this for a few years. Because this client has offered me this project and I know it'll last that long and I can, I can feed my family on that for a little bit. But, you know, the plan might be go back and work at a larger firm later on. So we would kind of handle those a little bit differently. Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. And we, we're, we get a lot of questions about the, the liability. Um, you know, like what you were talking about, Steve, the, the, um, the personal liability. 
Um, so is there, is, is that one of the ways that, uh, that you come in, Zach, that the insurance comes in to help, uh, uh, to, to, to cover some of that liability and, and that's a, you know, as it goes to the assets. Right. So that's a great place to draw a line between, uh, you know, business and entity liability and personal liability. Um, I'm, I'll kick that to Steve for a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about the personal liability of stamping and sealing and kind of what you see there? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's a good question and, and people are rightfully concerned and there's, really two kind of simple ways that you can manage that risk. The first is if you have an insurance policy that's going to cover up to, you know, X amount of damages, then you would only be liable, you know, above, you know, above policy limits. Um, you know, those situations are few and far between where people want to not only take your entire insurance policy, but, you know, try to take, you know, your, your personal assets. That's, that's a rare case. And then the other thing you can do if you are a corporation or some other kind of entity is protect protect yourself through contract by saying that, you know, regardless of what happens in this contract, you know, the the damages are limited to the proceeds of our insurance, you know, or the corporate assets um, and not the assets of the owners or officers of the corporation. So that's kind of a, a, a common way to do it. It's in the AIA, uh, you know, standard documents, that kind of no personal liability clause. It's pretty well accepted. Um, and it's something that can kind of take that, that creeping anxiety that people might have about personal liability, uh, off the table a little bit. But the first line of defense is always going to be, you know, the, the insurance coverage that you have for your, for your company. Right. And I like that, that. When we talk about limiting liability, oftentimes it gets talked about as a an LOL clause or a limitation of liability, which is a clause that's put in a contract. Steve, uh, you know, can write a whole bunch about those. But the better way to think about it is ways of limiting our liability. And what Steve just mentioned is one of them, right? There are many ways that we can limit our liability, and limiting personal liability in a contract is a very smart thing to do because I don't. I'm trying to think of a case off the top of my head where I could cite it, but. It would be a pretty tough scenario, but you could definitely create the scenario where somebody did something, they've designed this, they stamped in, in, uh, stamped it in their own personal name. The firm's policy will pick that up to the degree of the limit, whatever's available. Um, and then, you know, if that person was a very wealthy individual and maybe had a bunch of assets and maybe they weren't protected and they didn't limit those through liability, could you make a case to go after that? Yeah, I think so. Um, if there was some gross negligence or, you know, something, one of the ones that's it's always kind of thrown around is if you designed, if you went and had some drinks at lunchtime and came back and started making drawings and it could be proved that you did that, um, that falls under the, the umbrella of gross negligence. And there's some personal consequences there uh, that your, your firm's insurance policy probably won't be able to help with. But um, on the whole, you know, a firm's insurance policy is meant to cover everybody who is doing business under that firm name right? It's meant to recover retired principles. It's meant to cover, um, it's not meant to cover independent contractors. I think we went that last time. There's, that's a whole nother conversation to have, but it's meant to cover your employees as well, right? If the work is being done, uh, under that firm's name. Since you mentioned retired principles, mm-hmm. um, I, I know of at least two people in our community, two, two different situations. One where, uh, they've just retired, 
um, and and let their license lapse. Um, so they've been talking about um, tail insurance. And then we also have someone in the community, probably at least one in the community that I know of, that is in the process of buying out a partner that is retiring. Right. Um, what advice do you have for for those two kind of situations, either on the contract contract side or the insurance side? And I'll have something more specific on the buyout uh, okay. in, in just a minute. Okay. That's a good question. We could spend 30 minutes on that, but um, I'll take the first part of that. So when it's time to retire, uh, you want to get what you call the tail policy. We call it an ERP sometimes. It's an extended reporting period, right? It basically says we are continuing your insurance policy, but we are not contemplating any more new work. We are only continuing it for the projects that you have previously done. um, And we are here to catch you because we know that claims don't come uh, right after you know you make designs, they come years after, right? A few years after, they can come. Each state has their own uh, statute of limitations and statute of repose. And in the state of California, it's ten years, right? And so, in theory, you're you're on the hook for ten years. Um, so it can get tricky. Um, the, my advice for the person who's retiring, or maybe they just did retire, is go talk to your insurance broker, come up with a plan. Because you want to understand uh, if somebody came to me, okay, who are your clients? Are they only um, individuals who, for whom I built custom homes? And you know, we have a relationship and I'm going to send them a letter saying, hey, it's been a great career. I'm closing the doors. Um, you know, basically, if you're going to sue me, sue me in the next few years because I'm going to be on a beach in Tahiti in about five years and you're not going to be able to find me and I let my, my license lapse. Um, you know, are your clients big, uh, developers or, you know, somebody that maybe we have to worry about a little bit more? Um, and then your policy is going to have stipulations. So typically any good professional liability policy will offer an ERP option. Um, there's an automatic one that comes with it. That's about 60 days. That means if you don't purchase anything else, if for about two months after your policy, it should continue to pick something up. And then there are purchase options that typically go in and increments of one year, three years, five years. The irony of the the statute of repose is that it's really hard to get 10. It's really hard to to actually ensure that you it can be done. It's it's often an uh it's a secondary product in the in the insurance market. Um the reason I think there's a number of reasons for that, but a lot of it is is condos push that. So condo claims tend to come later than any other project type claims. They tend to come in year eight, nine, and right before year ten, from you know what we'll call a predatory attorney, somebody who's out there, uh, you know, talking to the HOA, saying, "Oh, did you notice all of these defects? Uh, I can get this fixed for you, and we'll start a you know, class action suit." So, um, it there, there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. So it it I would evaluate the project types. I would evaluate your fees. You know, if you were somebody that was doing seventy-five to one hundred thousand dollars a year, um, we're going to treat that a little bit differently than if you were somebody who was doing five million dollars a year, right? That's that's going to factor in what were your project types, um, how close are you with your clients? Uh, you know, to lead into the buy-in, is somebody purchasing your book, right? Are you retiring off, but somebody's purchasing your your name and your entity? Is it an assets-only purchase? Is it an assets and liabilities purchase? Because that matters, right? So there's there's a lot of question marks there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> just as just as an aside here, Vermont uh, has no statute of repose. 
and I've heard that my family can be sued after I die. Can that be true? Asks Jay Caroli. Oh, boy. Sounds like a legal one. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know, um, but I've, I've never heard of kind of unlimited liability for all types of uh, issues. Um, you know, one exception to the statute of repose is, is obviously personal injury issues because, uh, you know, that can happen 30 years after a project's right. done. Uh, and as long as they file, you know, within the appropriate statute of limitations after the accident, um, you know, they, they, they have a valid claim. Uh, in terms of being able to go after an estate after death, uh, I've never, I've never heard anything like that. And unless, unless there was some kind of intentional act that, uh, you know, benefited the estate monetarily, I, I, I really can't see a situation where your family could be liable in the future for some, you know, standard architectural services that you provide. Right. That would be tough. That would, I mean, I, you never say no. We live in a world of gray, right? It's never clearly yes, clearly no, but that would be a really tough set of circumstances to have the family have to take on that, that burden. But we'll have to do some more research on that, I guess, or, you know, maybe, maybe we can just cross it off the list. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> scratch Vermont <laughs> off the list of places yeah. I want to practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, in, in terms of different markets and, and types of projects that are out there, a lot of, a lot of folks in, in the community and the audience probably do, um, residential, a lot of residential architecture. Um, are there, are there markets that are tougher than others in terms of litigation or, or, uh, specific things that you see in the residential market specifically that people need to be paying attention to? I, I think, hmm. I mean, every, everything these days is kind of colored by what's happened over the last couple of years. So I think that that has bled into residential in, in a few ways. Um, obviously we all, you know, everyone's aware of supply chain issues and, and the impacts that they, that has had on both, you know, cost and schedule. Um, and, you know, depending on the client, uh, you either, you know, you either have a client who sort of understands those, uh, constraints or, or not. And you have to kind of manage your risk accordingly. Um, and then the other aspect of it is just essentially, you know, geographically is obviously important. Um, sophistication of your client is obviously important. Um, you know, the, there's so many aspects that go into it that it's kind of, it's hard to pinpoint one, you know, specific thing. But I think that there's been an uptick just overall as far as I've seen in the AEC community, just in terms of issues arising on projects that might not have happened before that then kind of have spiraled into, okay, well, this would never have become an issue five years ago if we could have gotten the lumber, you know, two weeks after we realized there was an omission in the plans. But now that it's three months and the cost is doubled, uh, you know, it, it tends to magnify mistakes that otherwise might have um, just kind of, you know, you would have been able to manage through your relationship with your client. Seeing a lot of that design for free uh, clause uh, for architects in California, which is something along the lines of I bid this project in early 2020 and then won it, you know, later on that year. And when I bid it, the cost of materials was X. And when we are going to build, the cost of material is Y and it's a variance of 
you know, 20% or, or more. And I had in my clause that anything over five, um, I was responsible for, you know, it's basically considered that it's my mistake because I was so far off. And therefore I, as the architect need to redesign for free. And mm-hmm. if I have to redesign for free, it's going to take some time. And if it takes some time, then the contractor who committed on that schedule is not going to be able to build on that schedule. And maybe they're booked out the rest of the year, right? So it's just this, it's yeah. created this snowball of issues. Um, and Steve mentioned sophistication of, of clients. I think that's really important. And, you know, I know client selection was one of the things that, that was kind of talked about this week. Um, the, the thing that if we just get into the world of psychology a little bit, a, a, res, a, a an individual who is commissioning their dream home is going to react differently to delays and, and things like that than um, a developer who knows how to do this one project type and uh, that's their bread and butter all day long, right? They're, they're used to, the developer's used to these things, right? And they may not be happy about it, but they're used to these things, right? If you're, if you're working with you know, other design professionals and uh, problems arise, you have communication and it's just, it's everybody understands and we just, okay, hey, like I'm going to send Jeff an email. Okay, they're going to get on this. We're going to do that. And, and it's, it's done. It's not an issue. It's, it's not a pre-claim. It's not anything. If you have to go back to, you know, a doctor or I'll throw Steve on the bus, a lawyer who is commissioning their, uh, their $2 million dream home and tell them that it's, it's, you know, six to eight weeks behind schedule, um, they maybe weren't planning on that and they're, they might be more likely to, to take some type of legal action. Uh, whether it's warranted or not on your part. So um, client selection is, is a very big part of that, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and you know, getting into client selection, these are things that we want to try as best we can to vet ahead of signing the contract, right? And we don't, know, we don't often know if it's not somebody we've worked with how they're going to react when things go wrong, right? If we're doing repeat stuff over and over and over again, inevitably something will go wrong and we've seen how that person reacts. And so um, it's a little more predictable. Uh, so insurance companies love repeat clients that you're, that's going to be a credit on your policy. It's going to be a discount if you're doing business with the same clients over and over again, because they have a vested interest in working it out with you because you're working on the next project together. Right. And if you sue me, I probably won't want to work on the next one with you. So and one, one other thing I, I should have, should have mentioned in my first answer was at least in California, the, mar- the market's extremely hot on the contractor side. So even though there's all these supply chain issues, uh, the demand for, for contractors is, is very high. So that translates to, you know, higher costs and also less competent contractors being awarded jobs, not just on, you know, single family residences, but we're seeing it all the way up at the, you know, 10, 50, $100 million construction cost where they're just not getting the bids that they need. And so they're sort of by necessity, uh, choosing a contractor that's less sophisticated, less able to perform the work. Um, and so it's important that, you know, you as the architect are communicating that when you're recognizing those warning signs to try to get out ahead of that risk a little bit. In the last few years, premium outdoor spaces have become a must have architectural feature. And Infratech Outdoor Electric Heating Systems have become the brand of choice among leading architects. Infratech heaters provide energy-efficient, ambient warmth that allows homeowners to live outdoors during the cooler months. Clients love them because they can enjoy up to 100 more nights a year outside. 
Architects love them because of their unparalleled versatility. From heater capacities and colors to mounting options that can either seamlessly disappear or accentuate a space with beautiful decorative coverings. They're also the only comfort heat company to offer smart home integration and hands-free voice-activated control. For over 60 years, Infratech has made their products in the United States at competitive prices. They offer incredible design and live technical support at every stage of the job. Infratech is specified at the world's most prestigious properties. Learn why and sign up for a free consultation at infratech-usa.com forward slash podcast. You know, where I live in Indianapolis, fall is a beautiful time of year. Right now, the leaves are orange and yellow, and there's a wonderful Christmas in the air. But let's be honest, as beautiful as it is, sitting on the porch and shivering as I watch the neighborhood go by starts to lose its appeal. I guess it's time to consider an Infratech heating system so that I can sit outside at least until all of the leaves have fallen. So when you said repeat clients, um, some people work for contractors. Would that mm-hmm. that would be a repeat sure, um, a relationship? Yeah. yeah. So is there? So Sarah Lee wanted to know if there's a higher risk if you contract directly with a contractor instead of the owner. So is that a good idea for us to do that or not? I think the the answer to the question is yes. The the risk is higher if you if you are doing. I assume this would be a type of design build situation. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you have a sophisticated contractor and an, you know a designer that's experienced with design build, um, you know the the chances of that relationship going poorly are you know are higher for the architect. Um, I'd say you know a, a good percentage of the claims we've seen over the past five years are coming from you know design build disputes where our design professionals are under a uh, you know, essentially a, a prime design build contractor. And, you know, there's contractual issues up the chain because the contractor agrees to terms that aren't insurable for the designer. Uh, there's just all kinds of complexities to that. So I'd say that, yes, the, the risk is is higher for you know, those types of projects than it is when you can manage your risk and, and sort of use that relationship to your advantage, like Zach was talking about a minute ago. Right. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that real quick. So a good relationship uh, on a design build project between a contractor and a designer that have worked together is a good thing. And you can it can expedite things. It can make your life a lot easier. Uh, like Steve said, though, a lot of people are entering into design build contracts without the experience behind it and without the relationship there. Um, and that can just go sideways so fast because uh, architects and engineers insurance operates way differently than contractors insurance does. And, you know, we talked about the standard of care last time. Um, contractors are not held to a standard of care. Their, their standard of care is perfection. Um, they, their insurance, their big ones are completed operations, general liability, right? That's what's going to cover them, uh, against defects and architect and engineers professional liability. It's covering professional services. It's meant to cover drawings and, you know, construction documents, not tangible physical uh, uh, building. So when you intermix those two, uh, sometimes the architect gets put under the same uh, uh, expectations as the contractor. 
and man, I mean, I've, if I've ever seen claims that, that got denied because, you know, uh, it was just a bad contract. It was bad. There was poorly set up. Yeah. Yeah, right. Exactly. Let's change the subject. (laughs) Go on to (laughs) something else. (laughs) Not a problem. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, but, but the, you know, you, you've made some really great points and I think, you know, talking, whether it's sophistication of, of the client or the blending of the contracts, I mean, what, um, what are some best practices mm-hmm. for, uh, for the people out here in terms maybe of the, the contracts that they're writing or the insurance policies that they have or, or even things like, Hey, you ought to do a background and, and financial check on, on your clients or there's, there are things that are going to set people up for success as they go into these relationships. Right. Well, so I see Tim's comment here and Tim and I, Tim's a client of mine. I know Tim very well. And I'm going to say what he's saying in this comment, which is having conversations, right? Communication. If I have set uh, expectations properly, right? If I have communicated and continue to communicate throughout the entire process with my design team, with the contractor, with the client, that's best practices right there, right? Understanding if you're doing something and you know the pitfalls, right? You can look around the corner and see, you know, where these things might go sideways and say, hey, look, we don't expect this, but obviously, you know, maybe this might be an issue. Um, you're risk managing, right? You're, you're anticipating what might go wrong and at least communicating that to everybody on board. So if you're, if you're having, you know, meetings in the trailer and, you know, we want to be talking about these things, right? We don't, <laughs> that's just communication. That's what I'll leave it at that. Communication is one of the best practices that you can have. Yeah, my my instinct is to to say that you need to consult a lawyer and get a really great contract <laughs> and, right. and do all this stuff. Uh, but that's that's frankly incorrect. Uh, Zach's totally right. You know, I think I think that having having a risk management team on your side is is certainly a benefit. Um, and, and there are ways, you know, relatively simple ways that we can put together, you know, terms and conditions that you try to incorporate into every one of your projects uh, that can manage risk. But those are those are sort of safety net protections. They're not the front line. Um, you know, those communications, you know, yeah. communications with the client ability to identify risk and sort of neutralize it. Uh, those are really the, the keys to risk management. And then, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't use Zach or, or, or someone like me as a resource to say, hey, this is going on on this project. How do you think we should respond? Um, and that's, you know, probably 50% of what I do on a day-to-day basis is try to help clients get out in front of that risk and, okay, we need to communicate this and we need to, you know, tell tell this person about this and, you know, that that kind of uh, you know, not burying your head in the sand, but instead getting out in front of it is is the best risk management tool. Right, right. When we have dispute resolutions, there's there, those are often outlined in the contracts, right? And it says this is the sequence with which we will follow. Um, we love good faith negotiation being number one, right? Let's get in a room and let's talk about it before we start sending emails and start suing each other. Let's you know, let's have good faith negotiation, which is to sit down and talk about what happened. And, and if you are going to take responsibility for something, um, and I'm, and I'm all for that, but there, there's a sidebar there, which is we need to, we need to consult someone like Steven. We need to have this written in the contract that if I'm going to make a, a payment of, of good faith, goodwill and say, Hey, we, we made that mistake. It's going to cost 50 grand. I'll pay it out of my pocket. 
someone like Steve is going to help write the language in there that says this 50 grand is all you're getting. You, you can't also sue me on top of that. Right. So um, there, there's a place for, for an attorney in the beginning of that on something like that. But really, I mean, we want to be able to get in a room, want to talk. And, and then if we can't, you know, we want to go to uh, hopefully like a mediation. Um, opinions differ. And Steve might disagree with me on this. We often try to avoid arbitration. Um, and we would rather go uh, good faith negotiation and then mediation and then litigation. Um, but none of those are fun. So <laughs> stick with good faith negotiation and just talk it out in a room as best we can. The, the, um, you guys know, we talked about this before we went live, that we had Patty Harris on a few weeks ago. And Patty's an attorney in, in um, New York. She specializes in business entities and, and licensure ac- across the United States. And one of my biggest takeaways from that conversation with Patty was, how mind-bogglingly complex it all is because, you, you know, New York is one thing and California is one thing and uh, Catherine's in Massachusetts, I'm in Indiana. Um, the answer to everything seems to be it depends. So <laughs> yeah. so when, when we're talking specifically about insurance uh, and, and contracts, how much do those things differ uh, across state lines? Um, and, and I guess what, because there are a number of people in, in the community that are licensed in multiple states, what do they need to be paying attention to in terms of their liability as, as they work in one jurisdiction or another jurisdiction? That's a good question. <laughs> Steve, you want to take that one first? Sure, yeah, no, I did see a, uh, I did see a question come across earlier about, uh, about a practicing attorney in New York, um, and, if you're looking for contact information, Patty Harris would be an excellent person to get in touch with. Uh, her and I have known each other a long time, um, so I just wanted to make that aside. But I think, the, in my experience, the licensing issues are so state-specific that you, are, it's really not advisable to, um, you know, try to try to kind of wing that. I, I really think that you need. To either, you know, just be focused on, on one state and make sure that you're following all those licensing requirements, or if you're gonna, you know, practice elsewhere, you probably want to consult someone like Patty, um, who has, you know, experience in a lot of, a lot of states, uh, in the East Coast, uh, on the licensing front. From a, you know, and kind of coverage standpoint, I think that's a little more national and international, you know, You'd want to talk to your broker, um, but you know we have clients that have you know a single policy that's written for you know every project they have all over the world, um, and so you know if you're if you're going to do work elsewhere, I think my only advice would be to you know talk to your broker, talk to to someone like Zach who can tell you uh, yes you know you're fine and you would be covered. Um, for this, but the licensure question is, is a little different, right? Uh, that's a good, really good point, and and you can get into all types of things if you're working with somebody who's in a different state and you co-own something. And they're like, I have a uh, a client where one of the principals is in Idaho, one is in San Francisco, one is licensed, one is not, one has her own entity, you know, and it's just like, whoa, like we could spend a lot of time on something like that. From an insurance standpoint, most of your E&O insurance uh, policies are meant to have worldwide coverage. And the caveat that we put there is 
um, in places that recognize U.S. law. So, you know, there are some places in the world where uh, maybe I wouldn't go build because, you know, there's going to be a whole other uh, set of reasons. But um, and on the whole, I mean, there are there are a lot of insurance brokers that practice nationwide. Uh, you need to be licensed as an insurance broker to do that. Uh, California is it's kind of like. Uh, law where it's one of the harder states to get licensed and once you do it can kind of trickle to the other states but the biggest one that i see in california that's uh it's an insurable issue or insurability issue is uh the california civil code uh it's 2782.8 uh it was uh an issue with the senate bill that was passed about three years ago and it affects what we call the duty to defend clause uh and steve can talk a lot more about that but um a duty to defend, you see it, uh, it's, it's often written, my client agrees to indemnify, hold harmless, and defend, um, you know, ABC client. And um, that indemnification, that's what insurance is for, hold harmless, you know, we could talk a little bit about that. But defend is an upfront defense cost, and it is not typically insurable. A lot of efforts being made right now to, to make that happen, but it would be the equivalent of somebody on your property had trips and falls says, I'm going to sue you. And you said, uh, okay. And they say, and you need to pay for me to sue you. And you say, that's not how it works typically, right? If you want to sue me, you're well within your right to do that. And if, it, if I'm found at fault, you know, I should pay for that. But you don't get to ask me for money to turn around and sue me. And so it's this upfront defense cost uh, that's caused a lot of problems. It tends to be in larger contracts, um, but it's something that we you know, we like to strike out or I like to send Steve. So he strikes it out. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that, that is a, a really good example of something where the same exact contract in California, uh, the red line of it looks completely different than in Texas. And I actually had, had over the years have developed a, you know, kind of like a table to figure out which states are which and, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of complexities to it, but California's the the, the 15 second version of it is California's case law got so bad as Zach just described, um, where an architect could go all the way through a jury trial, be found 100% not liable for anything, but still be forced to pay the other side's defense costs because it said defend in that contract. Right. Um, so so finally in 2018. Um, there was kind of enough is enough, and uh, my firm and others worked with the AIA to try to push that uh, legislation through the, the state legislature. And uh, against heavy opposition from yes. uh, contractors and developers, we managed yes. to get it. And it's it's been on the books for three years now, so um, it's totally changed the way that we we handle contracts in California. But again, outside of California, you have to you know you have to look at the law because you don't have that protection, right? It was surprisingly hard to get that pushed through the state. Actually, <laughs> there was there was a, a Senate bill that a couple of years before that that was that died on the floor uh, and didn't make it through. So, but I digress. Well, you mentioned um, I don't think you were used the word collaboration, but um, you know we're we're working with this partner and and this firm and you know all over the place. And I I, I honestly think that uh, there's going to be more and more collaboration, especially in the small firm market going forward. So in a scenario where maybe, um, you know, some, some small firm is thinking about teaming up with somebody else, what are they, what are the, what do the collaborators need to think about in terms of, of contracts, I guess, between each other and then between 
themselves and their their client or whoever it is and also on the coverage side on the insurance side gotcha yeah sure um yeah and i'm, and I'm not gonna say it depends but i, <laughs> I think, I think it, there is an answer and i think the answer is that you have to you know if you're if you're going to join forces whether it's for a single project or you know as kind of an ongoing entity you know, you want to have at least something in, something in writing that says what the, you know, what your various, uh, you know, rights and obligations are with respect to, you know, workload and payment. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing. What's the division of labor going to be? Who's going to, you know, who's going to do this? How are we going to handle disputes if, you know, if they were to arise? Um, a lot of times those are sort of honeymoon phase type things where they say, oh, you know, look at this great opportunity. Um, let's strike while the iron's hot and, and not really think about what happens when kind of that faucet closes. Um, that's like three analogies in one sentence, but, um, <laughs> and then obviously from the coverage side, you have to know, you know, who's going to be responsible, uh, you know, who's going to be responsible for securing what coverage and how is that going to pick up in the event of a claim? Right. Right. And so that would, there's some question marks there. If, if, you know, these are two individual firms that both have policies and they're coming together, we would probably treat that differently. If it's two individuals who don't have policies, you know, we, uh, would want to treat that differently. If it ends up being a joint venture of some type, meaning they actually like join an entity together and plan to do multiple projects that way, that tends to get ha- handled as its own thing and, and have its own insurance policy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, you're essentially starting a business partnership. And if you're starting a business partnership, those are great. Those can be absolutely wonderful, but it's a lot like a marriage. Like you really want to make sure you know that person and you want to know how they're going to react when things get hard because it's like Steve mentioned the honeymoon phase. I've seen a lot of people come together with the best of intentions and then find out that they have different risk tolerances, right? So uh, a situation is presented and, you know, it looks like we might have a claim. One person might be like, pay it, let's get done. The other person might be like, let's fight it, you know, and it's just like, whoa, okay, we needed to have known that, you know, before this came about. So um, I am all all for partnerships. I love collaboration and I love that about the design community. Um, but I would just say don't, don't do it on a whim, right? Make sure that you're very comfortable with the other person and the way that they do business, right? Not just who they are as a human being or as a designer. They might be you know, one of the greatest architects to ever live. And on this particular project type, they're going to put their flavor on it and it'll be amazing. But as a business owner, they operate way different than you do, right? And so um, I could see that going sideways real fast. And I've also seen a couple of references to, you know, things happening across, you know, across state lines, you know, maybe one firm is somewhere else, you know, the, the sort of geographical limitations have been lifted, you know, a lot. So there's collaboration, across state lines. So, you know, you're looking at even more complexity there. You know, you have licensing issues, employment issues, tax issues. So you want to make sure you're considering all those things, you know, based on your specific situation. But there's, you know, it, it's it's not that difficult if you have the right people in place, but you just, you know, you just want someone who can advise and make sure that you're kind of doing everything to protect yourself. All right. Christian just asked a really interesting question there. Could you mind if we take that one? Which is, yeah. Go for it. What happens uh, to two opposing parties when they have the same lawyer and broker? So I'll let Steve mention the same lawyer because that doesn't really happen. Uh, there's there's measures in place. Uh, but the same broker, we've had this happen in our office. Um, 
And, and actually, to be honest with you, one of the things that we, we like is when our clients work together, right? So we have uh, architectural clients, we have structural engineers, you know, civil. Uh, the structural engineers in particular have asked, who, you know, have moved over to us because they know we review the architect's contracts. And so they know that what they're agreeing to, that they don't often have uh, the ability to negotiate, is going to be much better than, you know, if somebody else was uh, negotiating it and or it didn't get uh, reviewed at all, right? But if there's a claim and, you know, we are the same broker and we have multiple clients involved, um, it does, it, it creates uh, some interesting scenarios. Um, doesn't happen very often, but um, it can, it can create a little bit of a conflict of interest. But I think on the attorney side, I'll let Steve talk about that. Doesn't really yeah. When you're talking, if you're talking about truly opposing parties that are directly adverse to each other, uh, you, there's conflict of interest rules that make it so that that can't happen. Um, if, if it's, you know, to sort of change the hypothetical a little bit, if there are two, you know, say there's an architect and, and they retain a structural engineer and there's a claim arising out of that and the architect and structural engineer are more or less aligned, then they can, they can waive a conflict and have one firm represent, uh, you know, represent both of them. And we, we do that often. That uh, that does seem like a little bit of a sticky situation there. Uh, it's, believe it's tough it or on not, huge projects, right? Like Millennium Tower oh, yeah. in San Francisco is a great example. There's just everybody oh, sure. that touched it, right? And so I remember calling all these attorneys, and they'll say, "Well, let me see if I can help them. I got to go check for conflicts real quick," and they'd come back and be like, "I can't, sorry." <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's real life. It's real life. Um, believe it or not, we're almost to the top of the hour, so. Uh, we're going to have to wind this down soon, which again, I feel bad for winding it down. We're, we've got about four or five more hours to go. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm it. feeling pretty lightheaded. I think it's about five. <laughs> Poor Catherine. It's like, An oh, hour I hate the risk limit. management weeks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what would be of most value to the audience uh, that would cover in the last few minutes? Well, you, when, Zach, when you were on with us back in September, you talked about your four S's. Mm-hmm. So, Maybe we can revisit those four S's very briefly and talk about the division of those four S's between you and Steve. Does that make sense? Sure. No, that's, that'd be perfect. So just a reiteration, I uh, coined the four S's of risk management for architects and engineers, and they were what are you signing, uh, what are you seeing, what are you sending, and what are you saving? And so what are you signing? Uh, contracts. Steve's the guy for that. We, we co-authored a contract review guide, which means that he wrote a contract review guide and I, I got to be a part of the marketing of it. Um, what are you seeing? Um, this is construction observation. Um, there are ways to reduce your liability, uh, if you're doing CA and there are ways to increase your liability. Um, and so we want to be aware of what those best practices are. The big claims that I see folks getting in trouble is when, uh, uh, Maybe a younger team member, an unsophisticated team, unsophisticated team member goes out on a project and has to do CA services. Um, what are you sending? And this is a really broad way of saying cybersecurity. And this is a plug, shameless plug for uh, Boris Rappaport of ArcIT. Uh, he is the expert for architects on cyber claims. And I have a number of cyber claims on my desk right now. And Boris is part of the team that comes in and mm-hmm. figures out are we going to be able to re, uh, rebuild everything? Do we do we need to negotiate with the the bad actor that's uh, asking us for a million dollars in Bitcoin? Like it is 
cyber insurance is just absolutely crazy right now. Steve and I both work on a, a very large firm and they have not had a professional liability claim in, in 10 years or more. And they've had a couple cyber claims. So um, this is, it's not just an issue that's affecting larger firms. And, and when we say, what are you sending? There's also kind of email best practices in there as well, right? Am I, am I saying things uh, to uh, somebody that I shouldn't be saying in an email? Should that be a phone call, no. right? Should that be a conversation? Um, and then the last one is, uh, what are you saving? Uh, docu- I call this document retention, right? What are your policies around how long you're keeping your documents? Uh, Steve builds document retention programs for firms all the time. So um, I would say the division, I would include Steve on all of those, but he would be primary on number one and number four. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, the other two are kind of on, on the on the firm, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving a presentation next week on construction administration and, and sort of best practices for that. And it's changed so much, you know, over the years, the AIA just came out with language about construction administration and drones, um, which, you know, five years ago would have been unthinkable. So, um, and then, you know, I did, I did watch, uh, Zach's last, uh, appearance on here and I, I saw a lot of questions about the document retention stuff. Uh, maybe we save that for another day. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, Zach and I are, are pretty willing to, uh, you know, admit when we're getting out of our depth and defer to the other person and, and kind of collaborate to, to, you know, get successful results for our clients. Yeah. Uh, is that one of the keys? Sorry, Catherine, I'm stepping on your toe there. Um, is that one of the keys? We've been talking about it this week. Um, and I've been encouraging people to, you know, use leverage the resources you have. Is do they do? Does everyone in the audience need to go out and find a great broker and a great attorney, um, mm-hmm. and, and enter into that sort of collaboration as well? So you've you've got this ecosystem of risk management. Um, I mean, selfishly, I'll say yes to that. <laughs> but um, here's so here's the way I think about it. Okay, it's a belief system, right? And if you don't believe that you have a lot of liability, you probably don't want to invest in a team like me and Steve. And that's okay, right? There are plenty of sole proprietor architects that have 30-year careers and just don't ever deal with this type of stuff. And, and I'm not going to say that that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Um, if, you know, if you do understand that, that litigation and claims are becoming more likely and not less likely, and you can leverage folks like us to help build those systems for you and have conversations like this, um, then that's that's what we want to do. Because when I started my practice, you know, insurance brokers by definition just broke insurance. They they place insurance policies, right? If that's all you're doing as a broker, you can get that done on the internet for very cheap. You can you can waive the broker fees, you can waive the commissions, you can waive all that stuff, you can go direct and you can purchase your policy and then you know you just have it. Um, if you want to talk about how hopefully you don't have to use that insurance by using risk management practices, and um, then then that's where we come in. And I can't operate without someone like Steve because so much of it is related to the contracts, related to uh, construction administration, related to document retention. It's so interwoven that I found myself picking up the phone and calling him all the time. And I was just like, hey, let's set up something where our clients basically get access to both of us because... Um, it is a conversation, and it is so interwoven. So, and I, 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 I would just add one thing to that, which is, oh, sorry, 
I was just going to say that uh, the the most common reaction I, I get once someone does make the decision to, you know, move forward with, with Zach and I is, you know, they're surprised that the barrier to entry is pretty low. Right. They say, okay, okay, so that's it. And yeah, and I say, yeah, you know, if I don't hear from you for a year, you know, great. You know, you never, it doesn't cost you a dime. You know, if you have a question, pick up the phone anytime. Um, and I think that that there's sort of probably a perception that the, the, the cost of entry is higher than it is. Um, you know, Zach and I are, are, are members of this community and, you know, are here to help. So, you know, it's a really good point. Is they often, you think of an attorney and you think of maybe paying for extra risk management services and you think of dollars and dollars, you know, tens of, of thousands of dollars and it's not even close to that. It, it's, it's very small by comparison. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry, Catherine, we didn't mean to interrupt you. Okay. Well, my burning question is, uh, mm -hmm. how do we get, uh, how, how can I get my hands on your booklet? On uh, the contract we... review guide, uh, we yeah. give them away for free. That's one of the one of the collaborations that Steve and I do is we like to give a lot of this information for free. If you want to take this information and you want to do it yourself, by all means, honestly, uh, we want to put it out there. So we do have a contract review guide. I can send you the link. Um, it's downloadable on my website, and um, it is it's 24 pages. Steve and I authored it together. It's on eight main clauses that architects will see, and uh, happy to. Happy to have somebody get it in their hands, and then if you have questions, follow up questions, just email us. We'll 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 gladly you know have a conversation with you uh, before there's any any need to engage in payment. So black swan blackswan-riskmanagement.com. It's the longest domain name ever. <laughs> so the, those of you that are in the audience, the uh, the URL is at the bottom of the screen now, and if you're listening. Uh, in the future, on the podcast version, it is Black Swan, one word, hyphen, or dash, risk management, one word, dot com. At least all the words make sense. <laughs> it's, <laughs> there you it's, go. It's, lo it's long, but you can figure it out. It's uh, long, but you can figure it out. Yeah, Management's the, like a uh, kind of a hard word to spell. It's got a lot of A's in it. Yeah, uh, and don't forget the E in the middle. But uh, yeah, it's, it's the uh, URL for Zach's. Uh, company Black Swan Risk Management, so Black Swan Risk Management dot com, and then you can navigate uh, from there. But um, Steve and Zach, we really appreciate you joining us today. And um, you know, this is again, I I know for those of you out there, I apologize. We've done two full weeks on risk management, and <laughs> it's it could be stressful. But hopefully, you've learned something. Uh, in this conversation and even going back to the conversation with Zach back in September, that's helpful, that, that mitigates that, that stress for you. So um, Stephen Litchfield is the founding partner of Litchfield Law PC in Newport Beach, California, and Zach Waters is the founder and CEO of Black Swan Risk Management in the uh, Bay Area of California. Steve and Zach, thanks again for joining us. I appreciate you uh, you dropping the knowledge bombs for us here. Thank you guys so much. Really, yeah, I absolutely appreciate it. If you have any questions, like I said, feel free to follow up. I know this stuff's not fun, but we'll try to help as best we can. So. Yeah, but but it's it's important. So uh, I encourage everybody that's out there, reach out, reach out. These are these are good resources, uh, and, and you'll notice that many of the guests that we have on Context and Clarity encourage you to reach out to them. So um, 
Uh, if nothing else, reach out and say, hey, thanks for being on Context and Clarity Live. I'll appreciate that. Catherine will appreciate that. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Awesome. Ab- absolutely. And uh, for everybody in our audience and to Catherine, as always, uh, thank you. Thanks for uh, being here with us today for all of your questions and comments. And and uh, I have to say every time, thanks for making Context and Clarity a thing, because if it weren't for you, uh, we, we are 400 and... I gotta look this up really quickly so I get it right. This is our 409th, I believe. I'm scrolling. Whew. This is our 409th context and clarity conversation. And if it weren't for you, there's nobody in the world that would have listened to me talk 409 times in a row. <laughs> in a row. So thanks, thanks for making this a thing so that we could have Zach and Steve and and talk about these things that we need to know. So. Again, thank you to all of you out there. Appreciate all of you. Uh, be well. Stay safe. Uh, take a little bit of time to breathe and relax and rejuvenate because we're going to be back tomorrow for a Context and Clarity conversation. It'll be our Mystery Member Spotlight uh, tomorrow. And then next week for Context and Clarity Live, we will have um, Michael Gerber, the author of The E-Myth and The E-Myth Revisited Ooh. and all those E-Myth books. Uh, Michael Gerber will be joining us next week. He's got a new book out, and we'll talk about making it as a small business owner next week. So join us next week. And uh, until then, I hope that I see you all somewhere sometime soon. Thanks, everybody. I want to say thank you to Infratech Outdoor Comfort Heating for their support of this episode of the Context and Clarity podcast. Visit infratechusa.com slash podcast to sign up for a free consultation and learn why Infratech is the choice for bringing indoor comfort to outdoor living. Okay, well, there you have it. What did you think of that conversation? Hopefully, there was some big takeaway that will help you this week with your business. If there was, let me know. DM me on Instagram or on Twitter. You can find me on all the socials at Jeff underscore Eccles. So send me a message and let me know what your takeaway was. And if you want more conversations like this, subscribe to the Context and Clarity podcast and leave us an honest review and rating. Those things really help us get the message out and help us help more architects just like you. Oh, and follow Context and Clarity on Instagram as well so you can get a heads up on everything that's coming up. In our next episode, Catherine will join me again along with a special guest, or will it be guests from the Context and Clarity community, so we can break this conversation down. It will be Context and Clarity backstage, so to speak. So join us as we all share our biggest takeaways and look for ways to apply what we heard in today's conversation to our own businesses. And if you love content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know that you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And finally, if today's topic is of particular interest to you, and you'd like to dig deeper into it, then join me over in the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations 
And we take these topics and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community, your practice, and how you can support those around you. Catherine and I will be back for our next episode. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context may be. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.